Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. You know, I was, <laughs> this week, I, w- I was telling you last week before we started recording, I don't think I talked about this in the in the podcast, but I I have this uh, incident with my lawnmower where, where the gas was, <laughs> my riding lawnmower, where yeah. the, right. the garage right. was filled with gas because it yeah. was leaking. Well, yeah. so over the weekend, I decided I was going to fix it. So I took the... First thing I had to do, I, so I, I said to, to my wife, no, I said, do you want to go? I'm going to run up to the hardware store. I got to pick up a couple of things. And she said, okay. She went with me and she's like, what are we getting? And I said, well, I need a hose, like a like a like some tubing because I'm going to siphon siphon the gas out of my out of the lawnmower. And she's like, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I don't think you should do that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Don't worry about it. So... Then I'm going to, you know, then the deal is I got to take it off. I'm going to patch. I found where the, the area was and patch it. And Oh, the, like you, you found a, like a leak in the gas tank yeah, itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, oh, wow. some cracks, very fine cracks, but they were, you know, gas was coming through. So anyway, I Googled best way to siphon gas. Unfortunately, the next thing I Googled <laughs> says, was what do, you, what do you do when you get gas in your mouth? <laughs> My wife knows none of this <laughs> because, so, because she told me so. Oh my gosh. But oh my I'm fine. God. I fixed it. I took it apart. I took it all. I was so proud of myself. I took it all apart, put it all back together again. It works. It's not leaking. So how did you, how did you patch the gas tank? There's this putty that you have to use gloves to, on it. you can't get it on your skin, but you, you, you. You soften it, you get it really soft, and then you just mold it in to plastic or rubber or anything that, you know, has a uh, – and the gas tanks were like – I looked at them, looked them up. They're like 350 bucks for the gas tank and, you just know. Just the gas tank itself? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, anyway, I just thought I'd well, share Well, well done, dude. Yeah. Well, well sort done. of. <laughs> yeah, sort well, of. I mean, like, I, I, have, I have this vivid memory of my father doing this when I was a kid. Siphoning, Trey, siphoning gas yeah. out of like he had to right. get gas out of out of a tank of something, right. and I and I still have this picture of him. That's exactly right. You <laughs> like try to like you don't like, so like it is it coming? Is it coming? Is it, it coming? So fast, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. Oh man, it's like well, gosh, we like how many how, how many days later did you let yourself kiss your wife? Oh, I mean, I didn't wait for that. Just a couple of minutes, and you know. Gosh, these mints smell like gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> They're gasoline flavored mints. <laughs> Too funny. So, oh man! Today we are oh. we are on episode three of this little sort of mini season of mini episodes that we're doing here on confessional communities. And today we're going to be talking about the symphony of confessional communities. And Kurt, I know you wanted to remind us about the fact that we are always being formed. Yeah, we're always being formed, and we, we talk about the symphony, because when we think about a symphony, we think about lots of different sections of an orchestra, these different things that are taking place. And we are being formed by lots of different things in our world. We talked about that formational process last time in our last episode. And one thing that we just want to remind ourselves of is that that formational process, I, we like to say it's, it's bi-directional, meaning that 
there are things that I'm giving. I'm giving of myself, as we'll get to. I'm giving of myself, but I'm also receiving. But every time I give or every time I receive, all the parties that are involved are going to be formed. So as I listen to other people reflect their story, or as I reflect mine, Mm -hmm. or as I reflect my experience of your story, this bi-directional movement back and forth and back and forth is always in this relational vein that is just as we've been created, we've been made to operate this way. And, you know, this is, again, is a thing that we like to say, and we'll talk in more detail about this in a couple of episodes from now, this notion that everything that we're doing in the consultation room, everything that we're doing in more detail, like, like it's happening in real life, but in the confessional community, we're just being much more explicit about it. We're, we're naming these things. We're saying, hey, this is happening between us right here and now. And this is a way for us to be purposeful. We're increasing this, what we call in interpersonal neurobiology, we're, we're increasing states of integration. We're becoming, in fact, we would say we're becoming more human, more real as human beings in this process. We're being formed into our particular, each of our particular versions of Jesus. And, you know, uh, we, we've talked about how these, these groups, these confessional communities have Various features, features of group psychotherapy, various features of the biblical narrative, features of interpersonal neurobiology. We're going to talk a little bit about that today and how these different things are actually in the process of forming us. And uh, as we said, just as mentioned ago, that when it comes to this notion of psychotherapy, I think there are a couple things for us to keep in mind. I think generally speaking, when we talk about psychotherapy, it's it's the word that we're using to reflect that what we really long to become are people of wisdom. We in our in our in our previous season that we just completed, this was a season on wisdom. Um, the work of psychotherapy is the work of becoming greater people of wisdom. That's what we're really trying to do. And part of how we become people of wisdom is becoming increasingly aware of what is actually happening in the room in between me and you and what's happening within my head and what am I doing with the things that are in my mind. If I am not aware that I have resisted being loved for most of my life because I grew up in a house where love was conditional or love was painful or love was brutal, I'm going to have good reason not to let you get too close to me, but I may not be aware at all that that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But when we're in a group together, when we're doing this psychotherapy work, like I'm going to discover, oh, there's some things that I'm doing that are not just keeping you out, they're keeping God out as well. And so we see that what's happening in a psychotherapy setting are the same things that are taking place everywhere else outside the consultation room. But again, what sets it apart is that we are being explicit, we are naming what's actually happening here in my mind and what's happening between you and me. We're being and- explicit. And so, I, so would you say that that as you're going through that process in the confessional community and you're learning these things, you're then able to recognize when you're not in the room those same things going on, but you can understand, you can see them and understand them more clearly now because you've done this practice in the in the room. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's like lots of things that we do. As it turns out, when you say we're we're practicing becoming professional human beings. I love that. You know, we we go to the, the putting green. And we're going to practice putting. We're pra- over. We're going to practice our chipping. We're or I'm going to go into the studio, 
and I'm going to sit down at the piano, and I'm going to I'm going to do these this one set of six measures in uh, this particular concerto. I'm going to do this over and over and over and over. I'm going to pre- because when it is time to perform, I want the music to own me. Right. But that requires that kind of practice, and that's what we're doing. We're becoming professional human beings, and we are being formed not so much by this thing that I'm just doing in my head. I'm being formed by what is happening between you and me. Mm-hmm. It's not like we come here and we just get information and then I just incorporate it, kind of like I'm learning math or I'm learning math, I'm going to go home and memorize my alphabet. Now, there is that kind of work involved of intentionally repeating and remembering experiences I've had, but I'm not just like memorizing a list of boxes that I'm checking as a way to get information and therefore somehow I'll magically become a better person. No, I become a better person. I become a better putter, not just by putting on the green, but by putting in front of a gallery of people who are watching me play. Like that's the real world. And But I'm, I'm not going to putt well there if I'm not practicing on the green. And so we, we recognize that being in the, this practice setting that is, that is, a, is a real reflection of life, it's not like fake life. It's real life that's happening in real relationships. We are, what we're really working to do is to develop secure attachments for the purpose of wholeness. And this is the purpose of all relationships. It's not just the purpose of the relationships in psychotherapy or in the confessional community. We have been designed and destined to live in securely attached relationships. It happens to be that our own stories are fraught with unhealed wounds and trauma that we haven't really worked through or figured out. And consequently, I operate in the world as if it's not a secure place. I operate in the world as if relationships are dangerous. Now, you know, we, we, we don't just walk up to people and say, well, I know that you're, you're, you're a dangerous person. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing that. But I am, uh, I have parts of me that, that worry. You know, I think back to the early days of our relationship, Pat, and, you know, there were, there were some conversations, and I've had these with Amy too. I mean, there are conversations in which we've revealed things to each other that were really vulnerable. And th- there was enough trust, enough to take the next step and reveal the next thing uh, without a guarantee. Right. Like I, 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 th- I think I, I, I'm, I'm trusting so far. And, and the fact that that happens means that like I become more securely attached, certainly to you, but also that makes it easier to be more securely attached to Jesus because as his representative in the room, as his body, right, as a, as a representative of his body, like you are his person to me, I become more attached to him securely because of this place about my story that I revealed to you that I'm not very proud of or that I'm afraid of, afraid that you're going to, that's what we're doing in these relationships. And the reality is that this process of attachment in some way, shape, or form is going on with every relationship we have, even with a person who cuts us off in traffic. 
with the person, the, the person who's checking you out of your grocery store. Now, it's not as deeply connected or as intense or whatever, but there are elements of it, right? So even when you express gratitude to somebody, there is this, there, it's, a bid, it's a bid for attachment. It's a bid, even, even in a small way, it is a, it is a way in which I'm saying to that person, like, you're really important. And I want to just stop and say, thank you so much for what you're doing. Not just like the proverbial, oh, thank you and move on. And so this process of forming secure attachments is one of the primary things that is undercurrent to all of this work that we're doing. And that includes, as we've talked about in other seasons, that includes, first and foremost, if we're going to be in a confessional community, our willingness to work at being attuned. I first have to be attuned to myself, and that requires practice of me like doing that. I have to be curious about my own internal life, my inner life, and how I'm interacting with other people. I have to be curious about that, attuned to this. I have to be empathic. I have to be able to be empathic and to receive empathy. But I also have to do that just for the with, with a certain intention in mind. I'm, I'm moving this relationship in a certain direction. As we've said here before, you know, sociopaths can be empathic, but their intention is to do harm. So it's possible to like, you know, give somebody the impression that you care like, because it's an intentional behavior. But the question is, where am I leading this? Where do I want this relationship to go. You know, Kurt, as we look at confessional communities, I want to share with you our Being Known podcast community, something recently brought to my attention. Did you know that the world is facing a devastating global food crisis? Many factors have caused this, including the war in Ukraine, inflation, fertilizer shortages, the effect of COVID-19, and extreme weather, right? These things have all kind of collided to create this global food crisis. And as food prices climb, hunger and malnutrition and vulnerable children intensifies. And so when we learned about this crisis, we thought, what can we do about it? This is why we sought out a partnership with Compassion International. Phyllis and I have supported Compassion International for years, and we know firsthand the amazing work that they do. One of the unique things about Compassion is that they work with local churches located where the need is most urgent. This is church-driven, child-focused, Christ-centered work. And this is where we all come in. Now, here's what we're asking you to do. A one-time donation of $50. You're not going to believe what Compassion International can do with this $50. They feed a family of five for a full month wow. with that $50 donation. Wow. Now, we get to be a part of this work, right? Compassion International empowers people from their own community to help. This is locally sourced food delivered neighbor to neighbor. And, you know, I love this because when help does arrive, it arrives with a familiar face at the door. And we certainly hope this helps the families and children feel seen, soothed, safe, and secure, in addition to feeding them. Mm. These interventions help families return to normal so children can experience healthy development and thrive in their God-given potential. We really need your help here. So go to Compassion.com forward slash known. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N 
com forward slash known. Make a $50 donation and feed a family of five for a month. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. Please join us. And one of the first things then that we see that happens, you're thinking, do you have a question? Do you have something? No, it was, I, the question was, was, you know, the sociopath being empathetic. They have the, you then you said they have the ability to, I think you said appear to care. So do they really have the ability to actually be empathetic and and still well, let me, let, well, and still let me, act let's, let's, in a way that is harmful? Yeah. So I mean, in in your work mm-hmm. as an actor, you know, there are plenty of moments in which you're on the stage or you're in front of the camera and you're and and with with the person with whom you're acting like if if it's a friend or if it's your spouse or whoever it is that you're acting and you're acting out a role in which you're being deeply empathic with that person well are you or are you just acting right like you can become really good at doing this and if i'm watching you on the screen i'm like wow that character was like really empathic and as soon as you're done you're just you, you go to your dressing room and you do your thing and you're you know, right. eat your lunch. It's, it's not fake. Right. But the question is, what's the purpose? So this is what I mean. Like empathy is an intentionally directed behavior that is necessary for the development of secure attachment. It's necessary. The question of course is, well, what's the intention behind it? If the intention is to give the audience a sense of an actor portraying this, like, I can do that. That's your purpose. And the person who's, who you're acting with, like, after it's done, they're like, oh, dude, like, you were, it's like, I felt like I was, I, I was, I was, I had the experience of, that I was feeling, being felt, feeling felt, right, right. Yeah, but it's just a role, or is it, right? So you see, like, we can do this because it's an intentional behavior, the purpose is to what intention is it? Got it. Yeah. And 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 and, and we and with parenting, like we do this all the time. Like I put the part of me that wants to kill my child to the side, and I quiet my voice to breathe, breathe, quiet my voice, and I'm and I'm, I'm going to be curious. I want to be empathic with my child when I when I have other things that are competing for that at the same time, because I have an intention of integration. I have an intention of wanting to move them in the direction that we want them to move. When people start in psychotherapy, though, it's this whole thing like, oh, I'm going to come in and be seen, soothed, safe, made to feel secure by the therapist. And immediately I start to do what we say, we out, they, we outflank them, right? Because the very act of coming toward me, the act of healing, the necessary elements of healing require vulnerability. I'm going to be vulnerable. I have to be generous with myself, I can be, so the vulnerability, like I'm bringing parts of me into the room that are hard to bring into the room. I'm going to be generous with that, generous in the space that I create for you, generous in my offering of my vulnerability. I'm not just going to do it one time. And I have to be willing to provide my presence. And then we we see that if we're doing this in a group setting, if we do this in the setting of a community, one of the first obvious things is that there are more brains in the room than just two, just a therapist and their patient. And that means that if I'm in the room with seven or eight other people, there's, first of all, less room for parts of me to hide that want to hide because I got more, more like there's more eyes on me. Hmm. 
They're going to be, there's more curiosity, literally. There's more curiosity in the room. And then the other thing that we often talk about, we've, we've said this in other, epi- in other episodes and seasons, this notion that where our shame and our fear are the primary driving force behind our traumas, that shame is like a locomotive. That shame carries a great mass effect. And even if it's moving slowly down the track, I can't stop it, even if it's only moving at walking speed because there's so much of it. But what I need is a bigger train. I need the collective community, and each person in this community is going to benefit from the collective community that enables us to have a different experience of our shame and our fear. We're building a bigger train to push back on that so that I am not just feeling like I'm by myself having to deal with me, but I feel like I have everybody else in the room together with me dealing with me. One of the other things that we also want to do is that we want to, we, we talk about wanting to move from imagination to incarnation, this sense that, and we'll, we'll talk in more detail about this in, in the coming episodes, but we want to pay attention to the fact that I want to be as present in the room as possible. A, an example of this is that it's easy for me, you know, something's happening, you, you, you're, in, you're in a room with people and they're having a conversation and you sense that, you know, John is now kind of like anxious, and you say, tell me what you're feeling. He says, well, I'm just anxious. And what? And tell me what you're anxious about. Well, I'm, I, think I'm, I, think I'm a little, I think I'm a little uncertain about what I want to say. Oh, what are you afraid is going to happen? Well, I'm afraid that, somebody, like, that, that I might hurt somebody's feelings. You notice John's talking in the abstract. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about somebody's feelings. Well, the only somebody's are the other seven or eight people that are in the room. And so we say to John, John, give me names. Who are the people in the room that you're worried are going to think? Well, this actually, like, it's, it's now no longer in the abstract of John's mind. It's in the room. We're talking about John and Sarah or John and Paul. We're, like, it's real people. And what are we really going to do with our embodied selves right here and now? We are taking things out of the imaginary space and bringing it into the incarnate space where we can do the work that we're actually able to do. It's the difference between looking at your house on a blueprint that you want to build and actually ripping the boards of the two by tens that you have to put up, right, for the rafters. Like this is, it's it's the difference between we're now going to do the work. And that makes it much more easy to be real and to be remembered because when those things happen in the room, we will then pause the process and say, we now want you to pay attention to this. And this is what we say with this kind of practice over and over, it leads to what we call durable neuroplastic change. So John has this experience and he talks to Paul and Paul says like, well, I'm, well, I'm totally cool with this. And so now John in real time and space has had an experience which he's named the thing that he's afraid of that when he says it is going to hurt people's feelings. And he discovers that their feelings are not hurt but they're actually quite able to hear this. And so we're going to send John home with an assignment. And that is, John, I want you to go back home and I want you to write about, I want you to think about, I want you to replay what's just happened in the room twice a day, every day, between now and the next time that you come back. I want you to embed this in your remembered experience. And so can you just take a second and talk about what is physically happening with John as he's doing that? Like, like the physical change that's happening when he's doing that practice? Yeah. Yeah. So at first, like if, if we were to have John hooked up to a bunch of like machines measuring his physiology, mm-hmm. 
we would notice that his heart rate, when he's thinking about talking, his heart rate's up, his throat's tight, palms are sweaty, and his mind is racing because he's trying to stay out of the room. Right. Actually. But when we invite him without nagging him, without forcing him, when we invite him to say, put words to what your feeling is, and we will ask him, what are you feeling? Where, where are you feeling it in your body? And he'll say, like, my, my, my heart rate's up. Oh, let's take a couple of deep breaths. And so now, again, we're bringing him out of the abstract and into his body right here and now in the real world. Present, yeah. The only place that he exists. He doesn't exist in the past or in the future. He's right here and now. And once he calms, and I'll say like, oh, well, who are the people that you're worried about? And he's going to, and it's going to be hard because he's going to say, it's Paul, it's Paul and it's Sarah that I'm worried about. And he's going to notice Paul and Sarah looking at him. Like, what, what are you worried that we're going to say? What, what are you worried that we're going to say when you, and he, and then I say like, well, let's talk about talking about, and when he does this, we're going to come back and say, tell me now that you've heard from Paul, you've heard from Sarah, now what are you feeling? And he'll describe, oh, oh, I'm much calmer. And so he's had an experience of naming things to tame things collaboratively with other people who are helping him do this. In addition to us saying, you know, again, we'll get to this bringing to his mind that this is not unlike what it was like for him to grow up in his house. That he would always be worried about saying that. So he's going to, because he was trained to be worried that people weren't like what he had to say and think and feel and stuff like was not welcome here. He's not going to be okay. And so like, he's not being stupid. He's not being a coward. He's being himself. And so we're also going to draw his attention to how what he just did in the room is transforming and renewing the life, the old life that he's putting to death, as Paul would say. And he's creating new neural networks of trust about the things about his life that literally 15 minutes ago, he couldn't tell anybody. It was just going to be the privacy of his own mind. And this is what real durable neuroplastic change is about. And then you have him go and do that practice of writing it couple times a day and going through thinking about, and and that's reinforcing those uh, neuropathic changes, correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And in many respects, this is what we mean when we are communally reflecting the image of God. Like this, what does God do? God is a God who in Genesis chapter one, verse two and following, he's a God who comes in and hovers over the chaos. He hovers, he's present to the chaos, both within and without He's curious and creative, bringing order and purpose. And this is what we're doing between people. This is Genesis chapter one, verse two, over and over and over and over again. And this is an example of how we are bearing and restoring the image of God to and with each other. This is, and we do this with men and women in the room together because that's how we are as human beings. We are not just all men or just all females. We are like, we are both and we are doing this work together. And we are in this way, we are mapping the text of the scriptures onto the experience of the community, because we are now as a community reflecting what God was doing in Genesis chapter one. There's chaos in the room. Now, mind you, right? People are not throwing lamps at each other, but there's chaos internally. Like for, for, you know, for John in that moment, like it's not fun inside of John's head or his body, but we are going to hover 
and the group as a whole can hold this. We're going to hover, and we are going to bring order and purpose. Because it's not just about John clearing up his anxiety. It is about John building a relationship with Sarah and building a relationship with Paul. And he's going to build relationships with other people who aren't even in on the conversation, but who are observing it in the room. This is what it means to be the body of Jesus. This is how we do this work. And as they do this work, one of the things that we would then make explicit is that this implicit work of God is exactly what's taking place in the room. And there are plenty of examples that we'll get to over the course of our time together. But there are just things that are important for us to know. Like, for example, in Genesis 12 and 13, we read about Abraham, and there were Canaanites in the land. The writers are reminding us that there are people in the land that are not for your transformation. There are things about my story, about my family system that is resistant to renewal. We're reminded of this, but we want to do it. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. This is Psalm 31, 8, a wide place to stand. This body becomes a wide place for me, John, to stand where I bring my distress and I fall over into your hands. It's risky. It feels frightening. And at the end of it, I'm in a different space. I'm not the same John that I was literally three minutes ago. Those are just a couple of examples. And in this way, we are expanding our imaginations, and I'm retuning, I mean, I'm tuning in to the incarnation. I'm always bringing it back to being incarnate. I mean, I'm attuning to this, and I'm bringing the incarnation together. And so this whole notion of how does the process work, we're going to get into more detail in the coming episodes, it's important for us to recognize that we are coming to be attuned, we are coming to be vulnerable, we are coming to be generous, we are coming with our presence, we are not coming to fix other people's problems, we are not coming for other people to fix our problems, just to offer us solutions, we are coming to be present as God is present in the very first page of the Bible, and His pre- and the way he is present for the rest of the arc of the scriptures, how Jesus was present, this is who we are being to one another. And so uh, with that in mind, we have uh, just a transition. We're going to wrap this up, but talk a little bit about an artistic uh, expression. Yeah, we like to offer. end each episode of the podcast with some sort of artistic expression. And this week, as we were talking about this, this whole idea of the confessional community and just the ideas of vulnerability, generosity, and presence— it made me think of poetry mm. and just the idea of even the thought of, you know, sitting down and reading poetry can be a vulnerable act. And, and it can also be a very generous thing that you're doing for yourself. And, and it does have, I think, a unique ability to help us, to bring us present. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's worthy to spend some time in poetry. And one of my favorite poets, mm. um, I was actually, I, I was actually br- she was brought to my attention by, I've, I've talked about Charles Nelson Rowley, my teacher. Well, mm-hmm. Charles mm-hmm. conceived and directed the Broadway show, The Bell of Amherst, which was where Julie Harris won the Tony for playing Emily Dickinson. And so Charles was seeped into Emily Dickinson's poetry, and he was the first one to bring her writings to my attention. And this particular poem is called Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Mm. It's, it's I, I, I'm sure all of us have have had times when we've, you know, needed to feel hope as something strong. And Emily Dickinson describes hope as this strong-willed bird that lives inside the human soul and sings 
it's song to us no matter what's going on in our lives and really requires nothing from us in return. So I'll just do this reading of this poem, Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. And so this week, for our application, as we consider the people in your life by whom you are being formed, and also begin Mm -hmm. to practice paying attention to what you're actually sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, and what reactions that you have in your body as you are in various relational settings. We want you to notice your emotional tone and how you're regulating it. Compare your response to what you, what you most want your responses to be in those situations. This is all practice for the attentional work that is necessary to be present in confessional communities. And if you are so-called, I invite you as you are thinking about these things to write them down maybe even in the form of a poem. Mm, 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 mm. And Kurt, thank you for today. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm loving feeling the experience of what happens in these rooms, mm. and I'm sure our listeners are as well. Thanks for bringing this to us. Yeah. Yeah, and um, if you are watching on YouTube, Amy's going to be joining us here in just a couple of seconds. Kurt, love you. Dude, always a pleasure, man. Love you too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at BeingKnownPod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.